Welcome to the First Century Church Podcast. My name is Stephen Wilhoy, and I'm the lead pastor at First Century Church, and it is an honor to have you with us today. The goal of the podcast is simple. We want you to be encouraged, challenged, and inspired to go further in your faith than ever before. If you'd like more information about the church, you can visit our website, firstcenturykc.com. And if you happen to be in the Kansas City area anytime soon, we'd love to have you join us for one of our live gatherings to connect with you in person. Again, thanks for joining us today, and we hope that you enjoy today's message. Well, this Easter, we are going to be finishing up a series that we've been on for a few weeks called I Am. And the purpose of this statement, as we've said nearly every week, is just to get to know Jesus a little bit better by his own words, his self-description. Not hearing it from somebody else or from a third or fourth-hand account, but from an eyewitness named John, one of his original 12 disciples, who wrote down what Jesus said and did. We get to know Jesus fairly well. So this week, as we finish up this series on Easter... Uh, We're going to look at a very familiar story from the life of Jesus. Even if you don't have much of a church background, there's a decent chance that you've at least heard something about the account that we're going to look at uh, today. What we're going to do is we're going to take just a few minutes and look through the story. uh, And then with the rest of our time, we will look at a few takeaways uh, to help to relate the story to where we live, where we are today. Now, here's what I want us to try to do as best we can, especially if you know the story and how it ends. I want us, as we begin to walk through the story in just a minute, is I want us to try to stay in the moment of the story. Like, don't skip ahead mentally. Don't say, well, yeah, but they know how it ends. Nope, because the people in the story, as it's being told, don't know how it ends. They don't know the outcome. And so for us to try to soak in some of the depth of the story, some of the richness of the story, let's try to kind of stay in the moment, okay? So we're going to talk about, uh, look at an occasion in the life of Jesus um, with some of his best friends outside of his disciples. So Jesus was very, very close to a family, actually three siblings, And their names are Mary, Martha, and their brother, Lazarus. How many of you already know what story we're going to talk about today, all right? You can comment, you can make a guess in the comments below, whatever. Uh, But you probably have a pretty good idea. So Jesus is great, like, BFF friends with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, three uh, siblings. So what happens on one occasion is Lazarus gets very ill out of nowhere, it seems. And Jesus is out of town. So Mary and Martha send a message to Jesus saying, Hey, Lazarus, like your BFF, they say, Lazarus, whom you love, is very sick. Would you come and do something? So Jesus hears this message, and he waits around for about two more days where he is before he begins to journey back a few days to where they live. And he's with his disciples, and we'll talk more about their discussion on the way a little bit later. But he begins the journey, and by the time Jesus arrives at their house, Lazarus is 
dead. And he's already buried. Like, it's over. So we're going to pick this up. We're going to be in John chapter 11 today. We're going to pick it up in verse number 17. So after Jesus gets this message, he's arriving at their house. Here's what happens. John 11, verse 17. When Jesus arrived at Bethany, that's the city, the town where they lived, he was told that Lazarus had already been in his grave for four days. Bethany was only a few miles down the road from Jerusalem, and many of the people had come to console Martha and Mary in their loss. When Martha got word that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him, but Mary stayed in the house. Let's stop there for just one second. That last little couple sentences there may seem normal or innocuous, but when I read that, I think that's unusual. Martha runs out to meet Jesus. Mary stays behind at home. Why is that unusual? Well, really, it shows their roles being reversed from how we know them from other parts of Jesus' life. Uh, there's an account in Luke chapter 10 where Jesus shows up to Mary, Martha, and Lazarus' house at a different time before this. He's just kind of there hanging out for the afternoon, and the story goes, Martha is, you know, doing some cleaning, doing some prep work, you know, she's making lunch for everybody, she's going, being busy, 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 busy. And Mary, where is she? She is sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to him talk and teach and tell stories. She just can't get enough of, of this. And Martha complains, aren't you going to make her get up and help me? You know, she wants to spend time with you and blah, blah, blah. And so that's, that's, that's their normal roles. Mary, normally you would think, would be the one to go meet Jesus. And Martha would be the one who would stay back. But here it's the opposite. And it seems like in the next verse, we know why that is. Let's pick it up with the next verse, verse 21. Here's why Martha goes out to meet Jesus. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Ouch. Yikes, right? Like, she's not all the way accusing Jesus of letting Lazarus die, but she's coming pretty close here. She's saying, Jesus, if you would have only been here, we could have avoided this altogether. Now let's get into Martha's mind for a second. Why would she say something like that to Jesus? Well, again, let's go back just three or four or five days ago. Less than a week ago, their brother becomes sick out of nowhere. He kind of takes care of his sisters. He's the man of the house, and um, he gets sick. And he's getting sicker and sicker and weaker and weaker. And they're just like, this is not looking good. And so they say, I know, let's tell Jesus. He knows us. He cares about us. He loves our brother. He can, if he can heal him, anybody can. So he, they go and send this messenger to Jesus. And they wait. And they wait. And they wait for him to show up. And he no-shows. Meanwhile, their brother is gasping for air. He is losing his life, and Jesus is nowhere to be found. Martha is going to get a little perturbed here. She's getting a little upset here. She's, she's overthinking and second-guessing and just like, hmm, Jesus, all right, I don't know about this. And she, then when she, Jesus does come, after he's been dead four days, she's going to let him know. 
hey, Jesus, this is kind of on you, bro. Like, I thought you loved us. Where were you? I thought you were all loving and all powerful and miraculous. Well, what's the deal? Where, where have you been? Where were you when we needed you? Have you ever been where Martha was? Have you ever maybe asked that sort of question to God, to Jesus? Maybe you are right now. Maybe you're in a tough situation, in a tough spot, and you're like, I need some answers. And if this guy has all the answers, I need some. And there's a lot of people in our culture right now, in the time that we live in, who may be asking those kinds of questions. Well, God, where are you? Like, did you take a vacation for a couple months here? Did you lose your powers? Did you leave your powers in your other set of pants, Jesus? Like, what's going on here? If you're so loving, why all the suffering? If you're so powerful, why all the confusion and discord and suffering and problems and pain? Why? If you'd been here, my brother would not have died. That's what Martha says. But Martha's accusation starts a conversation. And so let's pick it up here, the next verse, in verse 22, and let's see what else Martha has to say. She says, but even now... I know that God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus told her, your brother will rise again. Yes, Martha said, he will rise when everyone else rises at the last day. Jesus told her, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never, ever die. Do you believe this, Martha? So the I am statement this week, as we close this series, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. So Martha first has sort of harsh words, a harsh greeting for Jesus. This is kind of your fault to some degree. We told you way in advance almost a week ago that he was getting sick. Where have you been? What's held you up? What's more important than your, one of your best friends on his deathbed, Jesus? And then she kind of pretends to show a little bit of faith and confidence. She tries to walk that back maybe a bit because she says, well, I know that you can do anything and I know that anything's possible with you and we, we've seen enough and we know you enough that we, we believe that, but it's kind of weak. Her faith here is, is more like a religious sort of saying, like she feels obligated maybe to walk back. Maybe she catches herself like, uh, I was pretty rude for a second. Okay, Jesus, yeah, you can do anything though. You know, I don't want to completely doubt you. But even Jesus can sense her lack of faith, which we'll talk about more in just a few minutes. But he can sense that because what does he ask? He says, he says I'm the resurrection and the life. And then he says, Martha, do you believe this? And Jesus would ask us the same question today. Do you believe that he is the resurrection and the life? Do you believe Jesus? Or is your belief empty? Is your belief just religious sort of motions, go through the motions? Is your faith just, well, I guess I'm a Christian because I was raised a Christian, my family is Christian. You know, I don't really practice religion, but if I were going to check a box for the census, I would put Christian. Or do you just say, well, I, I just kind of do the Christian thing. I, I do as, as little as I can get by with and still maybe think I'm a Christian just because it's expected of me. 
where people have this ideal version of me and that's, that's part of it? Is that what your faith is like? Or is there more to it? That's the, that's the question Jesus would ask us today is, do we believe him? And then let's pick up and continue really with the rest of the story before we get into a few thoughts uh, about it. Uh, start it, pick it up at verse number 38. So it says, Jesus was still angry as he arrived. We will talk about that in just a minute. We were not, we're not going to let that phrase go, okay? Jesus was still angry as he arrived at the tomb. A cave with a stone rolled across its entrance. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Roll the stone aside, Jesus told them. But Martha, the dead man's sister, protested, Lord, he has been dead for four days. The smell will be terrible. Now, if you're reading this in the King James Version, or if you grew up in church with the King James Version, you know that how it says it, I, can't, I just have to mention this, uh, Martha in the King James says, Lord, by now he stinketh, okay? He stinketh. I just think that's so funny. I just have to always mention that every time I read this story. Uh, he stinketh. And then it's, it tells us again for the second time at least, he's been dead for four days. This is key to the story because there's sort of this ancient mythological, if you will. I mean, it's not super verified, but there are some accounts of ancient Jewish culture where there's a belief that the soul or the spirit of a dead person will hover over or around the body for maybe up to two to three days. And then after that, they're dead, dead. So it's making us know from the beginning here, uh, before anything happens, he's been dead longer than that period of time. He's dead, dead. Lazarus is gone, okay? So Martha said, Lord, he's been dead for four days. The smell will be terrible. Jesus responded, didn't I tell you that you would see God's glory if you believed? So they rolled the stone aside. Then Jesus looked up to heaven and said, Father, thank you for hearing me. You always hear me, but I said it out loud for the sake of all these people standing here so that they will believe you sent me. Then Jesus shouted, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and feet bound in grave clothes, his face wrapped up in a headcloth. Jesus told them, unwrap him and let him go. So what we have here is a case of the Easter mummy, not the Easter bunny. Remember, look, listen. What's the description of Lazarus? He's wrapped head to toe in grave clothes, and he comes hopping out the grave, all right? So a couple weeks before the first Easter Sunday, we have an Easter mummy. I don't know why we had that was the bunny, not the mummy. We could have mixed Halloween and Easter and made a really cool holiday. But nonetheless, the moral of the story here is simply, there was a dead guy, Jesus showed up, the dead guy wasn't dead anymore, that's the moral of the story. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. And this guy who was dead had been dead for a while. There's no coincidence here. There's no trick here. There's no, you know, pulling a fast one on us here. The guy was dead, buried, wrapped up, a goner. They've already mourned his death. Jesus shows up and he ain't dead no more. Okay, so that's the moral of the story. But what I want to do with the rest of our time is look at this well-known account 
And I want us to make really six observations or six takeaways that apply the story to our lives. Because you might be like, well, that's, that's cool, that's great, but what is that? How do I apply this to my life? It's what we always try to do uh, with, with the message of Jesus, with, with the Bible, is how, how, what does it really mean uh, for me? And so we're going to look at six simple takeaways about this story. And they all start with the letter C. It just happened that way. So uh, six C's or six observations or takeaways about this story, the resurrection of Lazarus. The first uh, takeaway from this story is to know that Jesus was always in complete control. Jesus was always in complete control. Even from the very beginning of this story in John 11, he is in complete control. Let's look at this verse number four. When he first gets the message, it says this, but when Jesus heard about it, that's Lazarus being sick, he said, Lazarus' sickness will not end in death. No, it happened for the glory of God so that the Son of God would receive glory from this. Skip down to verse number 11. Then he said, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. But now I will go and wake him up. The disciples said, Lord, if he is sleeping, he will soon get better. They thought Jesus meant Lazarus was simply sleeping, but Jesus meant Lazarus had died. So he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sakes, I'm glad I wasn't there, for now you will really believe. Come, let's go see him. So from the first news of Lazarus being sick, Jesus was in complete control of the situation. There's no doubt about it. He says this won't end in death. He says this is really for God's glory. But, but then what happened? Lazarus died, right? Whoops. Jesus may have got that one wrong, right? He said it won't end in death. But he knew what he was doing. Jesus knew even before he left, Lazarus was dead. He knew what was going to happen. Jesus didn't panic because Jesus had a plan. He was in complete control. He said, now you'll really believe. He said, I'm glad you guys weren't even there. I'm glad we didn't show up before he died because what's about to happen in a couple days is really going to make you guys believe that I'm in complete control. Can I encourage you that Jesus is still in complete control? He is. He is. The scripture describes him as king of kings, lord of lords. When Jesus appears to John in his old age in the book of Revelation, he describes himself. He says, I am the alpha and the omega. Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet. Omega is the last letter of the Greek alphabet. Jesus says, I am A to Z. He says, I am the first and the last. Scripture describes him as the one who was and is and who is to come. Jesus always has been and always will be in complete control. You and I are not in control. We've talked about that already in this series. There's a theme running through here. Everything Jesus that he says he is, we need him to be because we are not. He, he is in control because we are not. Things seem out of control, but he is not. Jesus is always in control. And again, the question that Jesus would ask us is the same question that he asked Martha. Do you believe this? 
Do you believe that Jesus is truly in complete control? The second observation or takeaway from this account is the fact that Jesus continues to work despite weak belief and strong doubt. Now, it's not weak belief or strong doubt within him. It's weak belief and strong doubt with everybody else around him. There's at least three overt accounts of this. First, the disciples, we just read it, they're with him 24-7. They've been with him for two to three years by now, and they still don't get it. They've even seen him raise somebody else from the dead, and they still don't quite get it. He even used the same language. So in Matthew 9 and Mark 5, they write about the same account of Jesus resurrecting a little girl from the dead. The disciples were there for this. He even said in this account, the girl is not dead, she is only sleeping. Now, she was dead. There were already people at the house mourning her death. But he knew what he was going to do. He rose her from the dead. He says the same exact thing here about a very similar event, and the disciples don't get it. Their faith seems to be pretty shaky. And then the second account here is when Martha meets him on the road. Remember, she says, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She's showing weak faith and strong doubt here. Then at the grave, when he says, roll the stone away, what does Martha say? Yeah, Jesus, let's do it. No, she doesn't. She says, by now he stinketh. Martha's faith was weak and her doubt was strong. Here's the good news. Jesus continued to work even through that. Jesus was not playing baseball. He doesn't have a three strikes and you're out rule with faith. And honestly, uh, there are at least two more occasions. Even Mary, the sister, we kind of skipped over their account. She says the same thing to Jesus in the house. If you'd been here, he wouldn't have died. And then the people who are mourning around the tomb, when he says to open the, the opening of the tomb, they're crying and they're like, oh, they, they misread the situation. There's actually at least five cases here of weak faith and strong doubt. But Jesus doesn't say, you know what, you guys, if you're not going to believe me, if you're not going to trust me, especially the two of you, Mary and Martha, you should know better. If you're not going to believe me, I'm out. I'm done. Find you somebody else that will heal. Find you somebody else that will care. I'm done being questioned. I'm done being second-guessed. See you later. He didn't do that. He just step-by-step kept saying, just stick with me. Just stick with me. Like, don't lose heart. Don't lose faith. He continued to work even when surrounded by weak faith and strong doubt. Can I tell you, I am so glad that Jesus does that with me. Because there are many moments where I have weak faith. There are moments where I have strong doubts. There are moments where I'm like, Jesus, I don't know about this one. Ah, maybe, we've, maybe we've gone too far here. Maybe this is something that we can't figure out, that you can't handle. Like, there are moments where we are all fragile in our faith or very strong in our doubt. And Jesus, luckily, doesn't give up on us. He just says, hey, just hang on. Just hang on. I'll continue to work. All we need is what, the, what he calls mustard seed-sized faith. He says, if you have faith the size of the mustard seed, you can move mountains. So he's not looking for much, and he's not going to give up. So we don't want to give up on him either. The third takeaway here is simply that Jesus cares. Jesus cares. What we see here in verse 35 is the shortest verse in the entire Bible. John eleven thirty-five, 35, 
at the opening of this tomb, says, Jesus wept. Now, when we read this account earlier, it said that when Jesus arrived at the tomb, he was still angry. So this translation has focused in on this emotion of anger. But I think, honestly, there are multiple emotions going on here. It's not just one at a time. I think there are at least three different things that Jesus is feeling here in this moment. First, he does cry. I think it really does break his heart to see his friends sad because they don't know what he's about to do. They don't know what he knows. And so they are living in that moment. They are grieving, and he, that saddens him. I think the crying there, there's, there's, a, there's a partial truth to that. I do also think he was a little bit angry, and not at what you would think. I think deep down, the anger that Jesus has is at sin, because sin brings death into the world, right? That's the whole point. Not that Lazarus sinned and he got sick and died, but sin is the reason for suffering, period, all of it. Sin is the reason for death, period, all of it. Now, not your specific sin causes your specific suffering every time, but the fact that we are all fallen, sinful, broken people means that the world is not as it was created to be, and that means suffering, sickness, and death. And that kind of angers Jesus a little bit. But then the third emotion here that, that we do see is, I think, some frustration from Jesus. Now, again, we did just talk about he continued to work despite their lack of faith. But I do think every once in a while he does the same thing with us. I think every once in a while he's like, come on, people. Like, how many times do I have to prove myself to you? How many times do you have to doubt me and I still come through? Why does this have to happen over and over? I think sometimes he may be like, come on, guys, you know. But he still works because he cares. The fourth takeaway that we can see from this story is that Jesus claimed something and then proved it. You might say he called a shot and he made it. There's a famous story from, I believe it's the 1932 World Series, where Babe Ruth and the Yankees are playing the Chicago Cubs. And this is sort of, sort of folklore, but it's a really neat story. There's, you maybe have seen the footage of it, a story where the Chicago Cubs dugout was jeering Babe Ruth. They were calling him names and making fun of him, you know. And so what he does is he takes his bat and points it to center field. He goes on about three pitches later to swing a home run over the fence, out of the stadium, to that same spot he pointed his bat to. Babe Ruth called his shot. As a matter of fact, the supposed bat from that supposed event just last year sold to a collector for over $212,000. Pretty cool. So he called his shot. It's similar in basketball. If it's a tie game, time's running out, you know, and you shoot the ball... And you, you say, game, you know, while the ball's still in the air, you call game, you call your shot, and it goes in. That's kind of what Jesus is doing here. Because again, he says, I am the resurrection and the life, and then he raises someone from the dead. He called his shot. Lazarus comes hopping out of the tomb like an Easter bunny or an Easter mummy. Let's start this trend, Easter mummy. I don't know if it'll catch on, but we should, we should maybe try it. So... What this says is that Jesus means what he says and says what he means. 
He's not messing around. He's not playing tricks. He's not playing games. He's not trying to be cute and clever. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Let's go raise a dead man, right? So what that means is that Jesus is reliable. He can be trusted. You can trust Jesus because he claims something and then he proves it. So if he says, I'm the way to the Father, you can trust him. If he says, I'm the only way to salvation, you can trust him. If he says, even though he's been gone for 2,000 years from this earth, if he says, I am coming back, you can trust him. Because Jesus doesn't make empty claims. He doesn't make empty promises. If he says it, he's going to back it up and prove it because he does time after time after time. The fifth takeaway from this story of Lazarus being raised from the dead is that Jesus coupled resurrection and life. Jesus coupled resurrection and life. Now, this is not a main point. But it's also not completely insignificant. Jesus doesn't just say, I'm the resurrection. He says, I'm the resurrection and the life. Why is that important? Well, to do that, let's go back one more chapter to John chapter 10, where Jesus says in verse 10 this. He says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. You see, a life with Jesus offers you the most fulfilling and the most satisfying existence you could ever imagine. A life in Jesus is fulfilling and satisfying. Even later on in 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul writes, God made everything for our enjoyment. Jesus came to give us not just resurrection, which is the most important aspect, but life. He wants you to enjoy your life with him here and now while you prepare and anticipate the life that with him that is to come. The life with Jesus is not just fire insurance, okay? It's not just your get-out-of-hell-free card, okay? A life with Jesus is life abundantly, life to the full. It unlocks true and lasting pleasure in your life. See, now you can experience connectedness to God through Jesus. Now. You can experience peace. Now. You can experience joy. Now. You can experience hope. Now. Through Jesus. He offers resurrection and life. Life to the full. This coupling of resurrection and life is important. It's not the main idea, but it's there for a reason. It's important. It makes a daily life of faith rich and satisfying as we find true life in Jesus. Then the sixth and final observation or takeaway as we begin to wrap it up is this. Jesus completed what he started. Jesus completed what he started. Now, this point is really not about the Lazarus story at all. Because about a week or so after this happened, maybe about a week and a half later, after this happened, Jesus is arrested. He is put on trial for his life. He's an innocent man. He's broken no law. In fact, Scripture says he was completely sinless. So, of course, he can't be convicted of a crime. But he is basically, he becomes a political pawn. He becomes a tool in this game. 
And he gets shuffled from leader to leader to leader, back to this leader, and ultimately an angry mob who wants his head in the first place gets to decide his fate. So Jesus is the resurrection and the life. He completed what he started. He is condemned to die a brutal death on a cross. He is nailed to a cross where he will suffocate to death. Even crucifixion, this this art of torture is where we get our word excruciating. That's the kind of pain, discomfort, and agony that Jesus endured on the cross. And if you notice on the cross, Jesus, near the end, in his last gasps of air, he says this phrase, it is finished. It's complete. Well, what's, what's complete? Well, the mission of Jesus. Luke 19, Jesus says, I came to seek and save the lost. John 3, Jesus says that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. Luke chapter 9, Jesus says, the Son of Man must suffer many things. And he goes on to list what just happened to him the night before when he's on this cross. John chapter 12, Jesus says, if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. Jesus completed his mission for our salvation. Remember at the tomb, the sin that caused death, that angered Jesus so much? That's why he was put on the cross, was for sin, my sin and yours. And on the cross, he completed that mission. But the story of Jesus is not quite over there, is it? That's why we're here this weekend celebrating Easter. Because Jesus did die physically on the cross, just like Lazarus physically died. He was physically put into a tomb, just like Lazarus was put physically into a tomb on a Friday. But then on Sunday morning, a couple of his followers come to the tomb to pay their respects. And he's not there. The tomb is open, and it's empty. And they're concerned then they meet Jesus, and other disciples meet Jesus, and he says, hey, I was dead, but guess what? I'm not dead anymore. Why? Because of what he said in John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. He didn't say, I'm going to resurrect Lazarus. Nope. He said, I am the resurrection and the life, and he completed what he started. Jesus is still alive. See, Lazarus was resurrected, and guess what? He died again. He died a second time. Jesus died and rose from death and is alive forevermore. He is still alive. He is still all-powerful, and now he is seated at the right hand of God the Father, interceding for you, praying for you for this moment where you get a sense maybe clearer today of who Jesus is, what his mission truly was. It was a rescue mission for you and for me, that my sin separates me from God. And so out of love, God did send his son to this world to rescue us from our sin, from ourself, through his son, Jesus. He was sacrificed in our place on our cross for our sin. And then he rose from the dead, defeating not only sin on the cross, but defeating death on Easter Sunday morning. 
So the question that we have to ask and answer today is the same question that Jesus asked Martha in John 11 at the tomb of Lazarus. Do you believe this? Do you believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be? Do you put your faith in the mission of Jesus? Do you put your faith in the person and the work of Jesus to save you from your sin and yourself, to reconnect you with God? That's the hope of Easter, and that's the question this Easter is, do you believe in Jesus? Let's pray. Jesus, I do believe that you are all-powerful, and I do take you at your word that you are the resurrection and the life. There is nothing that you can't do because you did what no one else could do. You defeated death. And before that, you gave yourself to free us from our sin by taking our place on our cross for our sin. So today we wrestle with that question, do we believe in you? Will we put our faith in you? You offer us forgiveness. You offer us abundant life here and now. You offer us hope now, and you offer us eternal life for the future. But the question we must answer is, do we believe? So today, as you're here watching, I want to give you an opportunity to respond to Jesus. So I want to lead us in a prayer of response, and I'll give you a moment between each phrase to respond. If you feel God, if you feel the Holy Spirit tugging at your heart today, you have a weird sensation, or you're like, okay, I'm tired of digging my heels. Okay, Jesus, I give. Or maybe this is the first time you've ever heard about this Jesus person. It's real. It's true. He came to free you. He came to save you. He came to reconnect you with the Creator. If only you will put your faith and your trust in Him. Now, the prayer that we're going to pray is not a magical formula, but it does, as the Scripture says, if we believe in our heart and confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and that God raised Him from the dead, we'll be saved. You have newness of life, a new start, freedom in Jesus. So repeat this prayer after me. Dear God, thank you for sending Jesus on a rescue mission for me. Today I do believe, and today I do confess that Jesus died for my sins. I make him my Savior, and I turn from sin. I make him my Lord, and I will live for him for all my days. And I thank you that Jesus is alive, that he rose from death. And I celebrate that and forgiveness and freedom and a new life today. And I thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you prayed that prayer today for the first time, I would love to connect with you and celebrate with you. You can email me at stephen at firstcenturykc.com. I'd love to talk with you, email you, uh, Skype, message, whatever, uh, just to connect with you and find out how maybe we as a church can help you on your newfound journey of faith. If maybe you've reconnected with Jesus this weekend, uh, I'd love to also hear from you as well and find out how we can help you to build on that uh, moment that's going to be a huge moment for you. Just so excited and happy and proud of you for making that step, that decision of faith uh, to say yes to Jesus this Easter. You'll never regret it. 
because he is the resurrection and the life. Thank you uh, for, for being with us this weekend for Easter at First Century. It's been an honor having you, and I hope to see you again next week.